Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, originally published in Orbit 7 in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. And Brandon, this is one of Wolf's masterpieces. I vividly remember reading this during my first semester of college. I had just gotten out of the army, and the transition to college was causing a lot of anguish and angst for me at the time. I think you remember this time of your life <laughs> as, as it well. does. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> and I, uh, I needed a break. I needed an escape. And so I got this story collection from my public library, and I found a little hideaway And I jumped right in. And this story just stole me away. And it let me be somewhere else for a while. It let me be someone else for a while. And as it turns out, not only is that a feature of this gorgeous prose, it is in fact the very theme, the very plot of the story itself. And I am super excited to dig into it with you. Me as well. I I can't wait to get into this text. Well, let's not wait any longer then, Brandon. And let's have you uh, take us through the plot of The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories. Winter comes to water as well as land, though there are no leaves to fall. The waves that were a bright, hard blue yesterday under a fading sky today are green, opaque, and cold. If you are a boy not wanted in the house, you walk the beach for hours, feeling the winter that has come in the night. Sand blowing across your shoes, spray wetting the legs of your corduroys. You turn back to the sea and with the sharp end of a stick found half-buried, right in the wet sand, Tackman Babcock. Then you go home, knowing that behind you the Atlantic is destroying your work. And I just want to say this is the opening to the story, and with this opening, Wolf introduces us to the conceit of the story, and he makes a conditional agreement with the reader, which is like, if you agree to inhabit these circumstances, I have a story for you. Yeah, it's a really brilliant opening, and there are several things going on here. Of course, one of them just is this prose is amazing. I mean, I don't know anyone who can read that or hear you having read it, Brandon, and not be immediately sucked into it. But there's a real beautiful thing that's happening here where this is a story that's going to be in, in the second person present, which is not which is an unusual storytelling mode and one that is not done well very often. And Wolf very craftily here transitions us to that mode Over the course of the paragraph, it begins in a nice third-person kind of omniscient perspective. Then we get a you introduced there, but it's a you that could be replaced by one, right? It could still be a third-person commentary there. And it's only until that sort of last sentence of that first paragraph that we understand that this is a story that's going to be told to us in the second-person voice. That's right. We're invited to inhabit the subjective space of Tackman. Babcock. And and through this recap, I'm going to try to preserve some of that for us, and, and we'll see how it goes. Wolf tells us that we live in a big house on Settler's Island. Settler's Island is not a real island, and it can only be accessed by a single, narrow road that is barely above the high tide. The village that we live on has no name, but the house where we live does. It's called The House of 31 February by your mother's Philadelphia and New York friends. Yeah, this is a delightful name. And if I'm ever asked to contribute to a Wolf Festriff volume, which would be a real dream come true, uh, I'm going to take this name as a story prompt. It's so great. Wolf does a lot of work here to imply that this is kind of an impossible space that we're in. Not only is Settler's Island poorly named, but the house is named after a date that does not exist in our calendar. The house is also odd in its architectural design. Some portions of the house have more stories than the others. Jason comes out of the house, and we get into his Jaguar because Mother wants to rest. He takes us into town where, after a nap, we get out of the car and buy a book from a wire rack in a drugstore. On the cover of the book is a man in rags fighting an ape thing. Jason buys lighter fluid, and he insults the choice of book, and he insults Mommy in a way that we don't quite understand, but he wants credit for taking us into town. Yeah, the description of this book here, Brandon, is gorgeous. I just want to read this. It is a wonderful book, thick and heavy, with the edges of the pages tinted yellow. The covers are glossy, stiff cardboard, and on the front is a picture of a man in rags fighting a thing, partly like an ape and partly like a man, but much worse than either. 
And Brandon, I just want to say this evokes so much emotion in me and so much sense memory in me of, of spending my ages, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 in Anderson's bookshop, uh, looking at books exactly like this. And I miss these books. And, and I miss being the age at which books could be, I don't know, other worlds, even better worlds for us to go live in. I, I really miss that. It's incredible. I remember going to the public library as a kid. Um, we would go in the summers like every week and pick out books and just the the vividness of the book covers that were at eye level for kids or sneaking into the fiction section and seeing you know the J's or K's, whatever your eye, eye level was <laughs> and trying to imagine what those books were about. That pretty much carried me from childhood all the way into my mid-20s. Yeah, and I, I just I miss I miss that I miss I miss experiencing the world that way and knowing that that these books weren't books that they were they were portals to another another world that you could go live in for a while. Well, we open the book in our bedroom. It begins like this. I had this story from a man who was breaking his word and telling it. How much it has suffered in his hands, I should say his mouth rather, I cannot say. In essentials, it is true. And I give it to you as it was given to me. This is the story he told. We learn about a shipwrecked captain named Philip Ransom. He discovers a mysterious jungle island and pulls his rubber craft ashore. Yeah, so there's a couple things to say here, Brandon, about this book, about uh, the island of Dr. Death that, that we, I should say, are, are reading in this story. So the island of Dr. Death here is a pastiche of H.G. Wells's famous novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was published in 1896, which tells a story that's you know, very similar to the story uh, that Wolf is using here in Dr. Death, though Wolf's version here is tailored to suit his own purposes, as we'll discover as we get more excerpts as, as our own story goes on. That's right. And it's really crafty because it also just suits The Island of Dr. Death as a novel. And he, and he had some wonderful stuff that's not in The Island of Dr. Moreau, I think that we'll get to as well in, in The Island of Dr. Death. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And there's one more thing I want to point out here, Brandon, before we move on, which is just to say that a lot of scholars of Wolf's work have looked at this story and um, have made something of a big deal of protagonist's name, the name of in, in The Island of Dr. Death, the story within the story, I mean, and, and uh, of Captain Ransom and his name mm-hmm. and they point of course here to the the c.s lewis space, the space trilogy, trilogy yep right where and of course that character is actually named after tolkien so there is and and i, I have do not at all doubt that wolf is playing with that that he is including himself here in this long cycle of of fantasists of of intellectual and religious in particular fantasists yeah absolutely and and and, and for those who don't know the space trilogy is c.s lewis's less popular series of novels he took a science fiction story where basically the plot is that other planets need redemption, not just Earth. And we have a kind of space shipwrecked hero. His, <laughs> his name is Ransom, and he kind of gets uh, taken into space. And they're wonderful. They are truly wonderful science fiction novels. The next morning, we prepare breakfast and coffee for ourselves and mother. Jason comes down and leaves. We ask Mama how she's doing, and she tells us that she feels strung out. After breakfast, we go back to the beach, and we guide Captain Ransom's life raft ashore. He shakes our hand in thanks, and we feel bigger and taller and older. We offer him a room in the house and go back to our bedroom to read. We learn that Dr. Death has experimented with animals on the island, trying to turn them into man. Dr. Death will see now if he can make a man into an animal by experimenting with Ransom. Golo, the doctor's shambling hunchback assistant, escorts Ransom to a prison cell. We hear another car pull up to the house. It's Dr. Black. Aunt May and Aunt Julie arrive shortly after and keep you occupied so that Dr. Black can spend time with our mother. Aunt Julie is our father's sister, and she wants our mother to marry Dr. Black so that our father can stop sending payments to our mother. I just want to point out here, Brandon, before we move on, that. Aunt May and Aunt Julie are both named for months yes. of the year, right? So it's, you know, Aunt May and Aunt July, basically. And of course, our our story is taking place in winter. It's in the first line. So something is going on here with seasons being pointed out to us. And of course, also, there is the house of February 31. Yeah, it's interesting how Wolf is using the Gregorian calendar for names in this story. He's not using the typical religious names. He's using colors or commonplace names or months. 
Yeah, and I'm not really sure what's going on with the months. This is actually something that uh, maybe someone in the, out there in the Wolfpack could uh, could write in or uh, drop in on the forum and let us know what they think is happening here. Let us know if you know. <laughs> we all go out to lunch, and a turkey club comes for us before everyone else's food. While they eat, we go outside on the restaurant's deck. When we climb up on the railing to look over the edge, a grown-up comes by, and he pulls us down. When they leave, we do it again. Dr. Death appears at our side. He smokes a long cigarette with a gold dragon on the paper. He has slipped out of the excellent novel we've begun to carry around. We tell him that Captain Ransom is here already, and he'll kill him. But Dr. Death tells us the truth of the situation. These men are not real adversaries. They're more like wrestlers who only fight when the spotlight is on them. Yeah, this is a fantastic scene here, this this conversation between Tackman and the Dr. Death, the fictional Dr. Death come to life. And I, I love here how fearless Tackman is. I mean he he just says, Oh, I, I didn't expect I didn't expect you to be here, I guess. Like as if it's just really a matter of no concern. In fact, he's a little annoyed maybe that he, he can't go back to, to watching the waves crash into the rocks a hundred feet below him. Even though when he's reading this book, we know that he, uh, we, we get later in the story, we know that Tackman is having like an intense emotional response to this story. That when he's reading about Dr. Death, he is feeling fear. He is feeling the fear that Ransom is feeling. But here, when Dr. Death shows up in the real world, it's almost a comfort to him. It's something I'm sure we'll get to in the, in the conversation. There's some Jungian <laughs> things going on here <laughs> with archetypes um, and the way they play within, internally in, within a single identity. During dessert, Aunt May asks us who we were speaking to on the deck. No one, we say. On the way home, we open the book again. Ransom tries to escape from his cell. He's pinned down from behind and knocked unconscious. When he awakes, he is strapped to the wall of a room that is like a surgical theater combined with a chemistry lab. Golo brings out the surgical instruments, and Dr. Death tells us that he has prepared a scene for Ransom to witness. He's going to perform his experiments on a beautiful woman, an enemy of Dr. Death's, who has been working against him since he arrived on the island. Dr. Death pokes the woman in the arm with a long needle and injects her with a vile fluid. Yeah, there's some great stuff going on in this segment of The Island of Dr. Death. And I think the first thing I really just want to say, Brandon, is that I want to read this novel. Like, I hope that someday we're going to discover that Wolf didn't only write these excerpts so he could include them in this short story, but in fact wrote an entire novel that he has just never published, and that someday we're going to be able to read this whole thing. I have the same exact feeling about this, and it makes me nostalgic for novels that have never been written in this manner. These like boys' adventure stories were typically horribly racist and difficult to read if you're like trying to go back to them. If you pick up H. Rider Haggard today, you're going to be like, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> like, who were these four? Um, but this is just fantastic. I think it's done so well. It's, it's, it's done so well. It's done so well as a pastiche of that genre, but also as like the best exemplar of that genre. And I'm going to point out sort of there's lines in here that I really like that do both of those things. The line that is really points to the pastiche of this type of this type of story, and, and I think in particular to Robert E. Howard, author of the Conan stories, is this line here. Like a thunderbolt of purpose, he dove through the opening. That's a terrible simile, but it's, of course, for, for Wolf, it's meant to be a terrible simile on the order of a Conan story. Right. And for young boys who are experiencing these events as they happen in the book through the cipher of, of Ransom, it's not a bad simile at all. It feels like bad writing, but when you're there you understand what a thunderbolt of purpose is. Yeah, I guess it does It does accomplish its task, I suppose. <laughs> the, the, but the beautiful line, the real artful line that I want to point out here is another simile, and it's, it's this when de- describing this woman who has hair like the sun seen through mist. That is one of the most beautiful lines I've ever read. It's incredible. And some of this came up when we covered uh, Dagon, which some of our listeners can access. Yeah, we did that for our, our, our patron feed. Where we talk about how, how important it is to use the right words in writing. And here Wolf shows us an example of kind of clunky poetic writing and just absolutely stunning writing. And and what's fascinating is is that Lovecraft sometimes does the same thing. And What's hard to do as a reader who's a fan is to learn the right lessons from these kinds of <laughs> right. stories. But Wolf, Wolf clearly has. And he's, he's wielding this, this double-edged sword here, I think, with real mastery. 
Aunt May tells us that reading in the car is bad for us. We may have to get a costume for the upcoming party because Dr. Black says that no boy should miss out on seeing the guests coming for the event. Ransom is trapped. There's absolutely no escape from the hideous creature that is moving toward him with a knife. What will it do to the girl? You order the creature to cut you loose, and it says that that is why it has come. The creature's name is Bruno. He is, in part, a noble St. Bernard. Dr. Death should not use creatures who are so sensitive to evil for his experiments. Bruno takes a moment to warn Ransom about the girl. She is more than what she seems. Her name is Talar of the Long Eyes. We are excited about this revelation. We pace around our room and we can't continue to read. We can read more tomorrow. We hide the book and see the island and the jungle and Dr. Death's castle in our dreams. Yeah, this, this bit here where he puts the book down, I just want to read this because it's, it's so awesome. It's so exciting. You put the open book face down on the pillow and jump up, hugging yourself and skipping bare heels around the room. Marvelous. Wonderful. It's just this, this internal monologue of shouting in your mind the words marvelous and wonderful because of a book. Oh, it's I mean, so beautiful. It, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I don't even know if, if people remember that feeling anymore. I, I read this story like five times this week, and it's become like something, the only story I really want to ever read anymore. It's just that good. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. I read it that many times as well. There was no need for it. I just, I don't know if I ever need another story in my life again. This might be the story of stories. It's one of the most perfect short stories I've ever read. In the night we awake because the house is too quiet. Aunt Julie is snoring, but something has disturbed us. We investigate, but there's nothing. When we get back into bed, we hear the scrabbling of hard claws on the floorboard. But it's only Bruno who has come to protect us and warm us while we sleep. In the morning, the women are cleaning and preparing for the party, and we are left alone again. Taylor has told Ransom of a secret and ancient city hidden in the jungle. She's their queen, and is much older than she seems. Bruno warns Ransom to please not go. She is dangerous. If Ransom goes with her, he will lead the inhabitants of her city against Dr. Death. So I want to jump in here, Brandon, to talk about the the name of this island that they're on, which is Lemuria. And this is a name that will be familiar, perhaps, to many to many of our, our listeners. Uh, Lemuria is a sunken continent that was hypothesized by a 19th century zoologist in order to explain why there are lemur fossils in India and Madagascar, but not in the Middle East or on mainland Africa. And it was an idea that was very quickly picked up by occultists, people such as Madame Blavatsky, who used it as part of a, a cosmology that was rooted in uh, scientific explanations for human life. But Wolf here is, I think, using it more in the tradition of speculative fiction writers, people like H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, who we've already mentioned, and also, uh, and especially, in fact, Lynn Carter. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's a fantastic literary tradition in speculative fiction as well. I mean, how many stories are about Atlantis or a sunken continent or the Antarctic? I mean, H.G. Wells in particular loves the Arctic and the Antarctic for getting people into the hollow earth. And these are all kinds of theories that have left speculative fiction and become sort of con mainstream conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, I think something that's happening here with this use of Lemuria that couples with the use of Ransom is that Wolf is inserting himself very nicely and very justifiably so into the sort of two strands of fantasy fiction that that are the foundation of where fantasy is now and certainly where fantasy was when Wolf was writing. And that is the Lewis and Tolkien strand that we see through invoking the name of, of Ransom. But then here we get the pulp strand that we see through his use of Lemurian invoking Lovecraft, Howard and Carter and, and other, other such figures. And it's really masterful. It's great. He's saying, I'm here. I'm a part of this now. Yeah. And it's just like, there's just this long continuum of writers and Wolf knows that he is a part of it. Uh, but also it's not just that Wolf as a writer is a part of it. Wolf is part of it as a reader. And we as readers are a part of this continuum as well. That's right. I mean, that's an excellent point about this story is to draw readers into this tradition 
um, and Wolf kind of staking his claim really as a fan. There's just one more thing I want to point out here in this section too is that Teller of the Long Eyes talks here of evolution and deep time. And this uh, combined with Dr. Death's genetic experiments, uh, these elements are precursors to elements that we'll see developed more fully in later works by Wolf. It's really cool to see them here in his pastiche. This story is one of the stories where you see a lot of what Wolf is going to be doing later, and it's just a pure delight. Aunt May knocks on the door and scolds us because it is locked. She's dressed like a gypsy. We go downstairs, and Mother is dressed in day-glow robes that cover her arms, but it's almost completely open in the front. The guests are finally arriving. They're all in costume, and we find a place to hide under a table. I want to talk a little bit here about the costumes, Brandon. So at the costume party, Dr. Black just wears his doctoring uniform, like as if it's a costume. I think we all know that guy at a Halloween party who does that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty lame, but I think it's going to, I'm going to bring that back up in the discussion. But I want to point out here, Jason is wearing an interesting costume as well. So I'm going to read for you and for listeners the line that Wolf gives, and then I'm going to tell you what I think this actually means. Jason is dressed as a soldier in a black uniform with a pirate thing on his hat and a whip. Jason is dressed as a Nazi SS officer standing oh, next that to Dr. Be. Black. That's interesting. Yeah, I did not, I did not think of that. I, so the, the pirate thing on his hat. Skull and crossbones, skull and bones. Yeah, the skull the, and bones. Yeah. And the sol- black soldier uniform, is that what he says? Just as black, yeah, soldier in a black uniform. Yeah, that's yeah, it. With a, with a whip, which is an, a thing that a, an officer would have carried around in the camps. Jason's a rough dude. Yeah. He's a real bad guy. We get it, earlier on in the story, one thing we didn't bring up is that Attackman briefly compares Ransom to Jason, and Ransom is immediately far better. It's a way that Wolf communicates to us that Jason is one of the only male role model figures in Tackman's life. That's right. With Tackman's father... In in absentia, there is there, he has very few male role models, and we're going to see her as the story is coming to a close. That there he has no good male role models. That's right. Captain Ransom arrives to pull us out from under the table, and he tries to get us to join the party. He's accompanied by Talar, who is naked except for her jewelry. She's the same height as us. No one else at the party seems to notice, so we explore the house which is different now that so many people are there. In what was our living room, there are some couples making love on the couch, and the television is on. And in a further room, a girl sits alone while men huddle in dark corners. She wants to pretend that we're real. Ransom and Teller have gone, perhaps back to the living room. The girl who sits alone is having an acid trip, and it's going okay. Yeah, I just want to jump in here, Brandon, to zoom in a little bit on her actual dialogue, because this is going to come back in our discussion. When Teller and Tackman and Ransom enter the room, this woman says, hello, hello to you all. Then she tells Tackman, I'm going to pretend you're real. Do you mind? This is going to be a a feature of our discussion. Yeah, yeah. That's a big part of the story. (laughs) Dr. Death appears. He wants to show us something. So we follow him back to Mother's room where Dr. Black is giving Mother a shot in the arm, and we notice her arm is covered in needle marks. It reminds us of what Dr. Death did to Talar, and we run away out the door to the next house, where we convince our neighbor to call the police. Yeah, this scene here is absolutely heartbreaking. He, this imaginary person from a book he's reading leads him up to his mother's room where he observes her, observes her having a drug overdose and he can't get anyone at the party to pay any attention to him. It's, and even the neighbor lady doesn't want to listen to him at first. It's awful. Yes. I'm going to start crying just talking here it's right like, now about it. it. It's so terrible. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. kid has no, he has no agency in his own, in his own life. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. It's, it is heartbreaking. And of course he doesn't, quite understand it he just knows he has to get help and it just the way wolf the way this is wolf's best use of subjectivity as a narrator that and it doesn't get better than this though he plays this with this technique quite a lot dr death's castle is burning with everyone inside ransom tries to get them to come out or they'll be killed the lemurian bowmen shoot arrows at the castle 
Taylor begs Ransom to retreat, and he does. We are in the waiting room, and a woman in a blue uniform wants to talk to us, even though we're sleepy. She wants to know who gave our mother drugs. We tell her Dr. Black was going to do something to her. Did Jason give her the drugs? We don't know. The woman tells us that Dr. Black was trying to save mother because she took too much and too many medicines all at once. We'll have to live in another house with other boys for a while until it gets sorted out. Once they leave, Dr. Death asks us, what's wrong? You tell him you don't want him to die. And you know that's what will happen at the end of the book. Dr. Death smiles. But if you start the book again, we'll all be back. Even Golo and the Bullmen. Honest? Certainly. He stands up and tousles your hair. It's the same with you, Tacky. You're too young to realize it yet. But it's the same with you. All right. Well, on this uh, this sad and maybe potentially hopeful note, uh, let's let's dig in on our discussion here, Brandon. I've got three big topics I want us to consider with this story, and the first of these broad categories I'm dubbing fiction and the world. We see in the story that the Island of Doctor Death, the novel, the Island of Doctor Death, helps Tackman escape from the oppression of his lonely world. But Wolf weaves elements of speculative fiction into the story that make us wonder if there isn't actually more to the relationship between the world of Dr. Death and the world of Tackman Babcock. And, and we can see this clearly, for example, in the analogous relationship between Mrs. Babcock and Talar of the Long Eyes. Talar is injected by Dr. Death, and, and we get this description. A cloud passed over her sleeping face as though she had already begun an evil dream. And we can compare this to Mrs. Babcock's difficulties uh, with sleep and her feeling of strung out. And then the scene where we first meet her. And Tackman himself recalls this very passage from the novel he's reading when he sees Dr. Black huddled over his mother with a needle. So, Brandon, the first question I want to pose to you in this big category is whether the real world analog to Dr. Death is Jason or Dr. Black. And in a sense, then, I'm, I'm asking the same question that the, the doctors asked Tackman, which is, who is supplying Mrs. Babcock with amphetamines? Is it Dr. Black or is it Jason? So I think there are two answers to that question. And unfortunately, the answer is, is both, because there is certainly an objective answer to that question. I think we can say with relative surety that Jason is the one who is the drug supplier, the drug dealer. But like Dr. Death's function in the story and function in real life, Tacky is having a really hard time figuring out who's good and who's bad. Um, certainly in the beginning, Jason is good because he gets him a book. And even though he's a little mean, he's kind of the only person that is interacting with Tackman. I think he's the only character in the story that interacts with Tackman really at all, apart from the ants. Maybe I should say in any meaningful sense for Tackman. But the real world analog for Dr. Death is kind of a moving target. So clearly it's Dr. Black in that moment where Tackman senses there's something wrong at this party. This is this is a traumatic space for a child to be in. And he, for reasons unknown to him, this would be like the Freudian unconscious, though the person who leads him to his mother is an interesting choice. He goes to seek out his mother and witnesses an overdose. And so he does, he acts the only way he can figure out how to act, which is to call the police, like the real world authorities. Dr. Black is not like a real authority figure to him. He doesn't trust that he's doing good. And the fact that there are needle marks all over his mother's arm indicate that some Dr. Death has been administering vile fluids to his mother in the same way that he was to Talar. And, and this is the sign of like really an intelligent child who's trying to use all the information they can to make connections in the world that will help them navigate their own, you know, truly difficult experiences. I just want to look at some of the textual clues that Wolf leaves here for us when he presents us with this question. And some of these observations come from uh, work of, from other scholars, Joan Gordon and, and Mark Aramini, for example. So one thing that we see, Brandon, is that Dr. Black has a car that is shiny with new wax. 
Dr. Death has shiny black hair, Mm -hmm. for example. Uh, Dr. Moreau of H.G. Wells, the book that Wolf is uh, is pastiching here, the the name Moreau means black, right? He is Dr. Black. And I also want to point out here that something just staying on this topic of names, that Jason uh, is a name from Greek heroic mythology, uh, and he's linked to Medea, who, of course, is a bad mother, a very bad mother, uh, in fact, uh, who is herself linked to the Minotaur, which is uh, actually one of Dr. Death's servants, and who, who is invoked there in the last line, that the bull man will be back. But you bring up here one of the, the sort of counter things that, of course, Dr. Death is actually the one who shows Tackman what is going on in the first place, um, even though, you know, what we see of Dr. Death in the in the novel is that he is an evil, wicked person, but here he's actually helping Tackman out. So all of this is uh, gets pretty complicated. So Dr. Death and Ransom are both heroes in some fashion. <laughs> Um, they are both, at least as presented to us in this story, on some kind of hero's journey. Dr. Death is trying to unlock the key of human genetics and an- animals and create a perfect creature of some kind, perhaps in, her- in his own image. It's certainly the journey of an anti-hero, and it's certainly dark. And Ransom is the hero in the sense that he is thrown into a situation and he is fighting for the right way to live. This is wrong, and he's going to do what's right. And Tackman needs both of these men in his life at this time, one who is going to guide him in kind of be a cipher for how to act heroically and nobly, and one who is going to help him unlock the darker things he needs to know to survive in his environment. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And I think one thing, uh, you know, this actually kind of leads into my second broad category of questions here, Brandon, which is is simply to sort of in some ways to point out that that things aren't what they seem here in this world. And one of these being that good isn't necessarily good and evil isn't necessarily evil. And I, I think we see that with Bruno, for instance, who knows that Talar is not good and and warns and begs uh, ransom to not go with her and get involved in her world and political struggles or whatever's going on in the ancient city. But she's also an expedient to ending the immediate evil of Dr. Death's actions. Yeah, you know, this Bruno sensing, knowing deep within him that Talar of the Long Eyes is wicked and that our romantic hero should not go with her is an interesting part of this story because it it doesn't come back. We don't actually ever see that Bruno's feelings are vindicated, that she is actually Ransom's undoing somehow, or that choices that Ransom makes about her lead to his undoing at some point. And I had to read this, Brandon, as uh, given the amount of, of sort of sensuality and nudity that is imbued in her character, that this is sort of a, a, a metaphor for growing up and that what Bruno is saying to Tackman is don't grow up. No, there's nothing good there. That's a really brilliant insight. I mean, I kind of struggle to understand why the warning is thrown out and then never addressed again, and why she shows up at the party nude, and then she disappears in this room, potentially with Ransom. And here we witness Tackman have firsthand experience about human sexuality and understands what was going on in the novel then at that time. It's a really interesting connection that I, I kind of hadn't made until you just brought that up. But that's why Ransom and Teller go back to the living room. And that's something that Tackman maybe understands about how she's written and Ransom's desire to go back and help her. Yeah, this this story is about the moment when Tackman does grow up, when he is faced with the adult world in a truly tragic and traumatic way way. And he's forced to take responsibility for his actions. These are going to have long lasting impacts that he cannot reverse. And he doesn't fully understand that. So I want to jump in on this idea here of things not being what they seem. And Wolf gives us a lot of examples of things not being as they seem. Settler's Island is not an island. Settler's Island isn't properly displayed on the map. Tackman's house has two names. It's also gray, but it used to be yellow. Uh, It's not clear what is human and what is animal on Dr. Death's island. Many Lemurians no longer look human, even if they once were. And finally, there is a costume party at which people have taken on new identities. And this here, Brandon, now that I've made this big list, I am going to come to a question here, uh, which is, why doesn't Dr. Black wear a costume? And does it mean anything that Tackman doesn't either? 
Well, it's interesting to me to kind of circumnavigate the question a little bit and maybe yeah. maybe maybe kind of come around to answering it. It's interesting to me that Dr. Black is the one who suggests that Tackman has a costume because it, a boy needs to see the guests arriving at least. Like, this is a big deal. We know that Mrs. Babcock has friends in New York and Philadelphia and that maybe this is the kind of party that they all come to. And and in fact, we get references to those men huddled in the corner are from the city, Tackman thinks. He's got an instinct about what's going on that he cannot quite define or figure out his environment. He is as yet unable to articulate, and this is part of the growing up process, is the ability to actually fully understand in context what is happening. One thing to note is that uh, Aunt May walks into his room in costume and he recognizes her. He recognizes his mother. The people that he knows, he recognizes their masks. And that is also something that you have to navigate as you begin to grow up is people's personas and their public faces. I, I, I guess I guess really persona is just the only word. People have multiple personas. Uh, this is like a discovery of modernity that... I won't get into, but the idea that we have these fragmented personalities as a result of the responsibilities placed on us by the multiple communities that we all participate in, work, home, if we participate in a religious community, if we go to the gym, if we participate on an online forum, all of these things bear down on us in certain ways that expect us to respond in certain ways. This is a persona. And so... Tackman in this story is trying on a few personas, three at least. He's trying Ransom, he's trying Dr. Death, and he's trying Bruno. And so whether or not he is wearing a costume to the party, he's protected by these personas that he calls out to help him navigate these situations. And so I want to, uh, I think this is some great insights, Brandon. I want to come back to Dr. Black then, because I do think it's important that it's significant. That he that- does not have really a persona. Right. He doesn't have a persona. He doesn't wear a costume. He is the, perhaps in some ways, the only thing that is exactly what he seems to be in the story. I'm happy to believe that. I'm happy to believe the female police officer who tries to let Tacky know that Dr. Black was doing the right thing. And here's what I think is going on in a kind of a way that's not articulated in the story, is that Tackman has an inability to explore his feelings related to a potential new father figure. And he sees him both as the good and the bad. And so Dr. Black is a person who is exactly how he seems. And Tackman is not used to that. And he doesn't know how he feels about any of the circumstances that surround his knowing Dr. Black. That's interesting. So I, I read the character of Dr. Black, I think, very differently than you did. And this was kind of at the heart of my, my first question to you. And that's to say, I think Dr. Black is the person who's giving her the amphetamines. I think that Jason works for Dr. Black. I think Dr. Black is how Jason gets drugs to deal in the first place. And I think that there are, that these textual clues there about the relationship between Dr. Black and right, right, Dr. Right, Death right. Are, are pointing to that, that Jason is Dr. Death's He's the analog of Dr. He's, Death's lackey. He's, he's Golo, yeah, he's and he's Golo, the bull yeah. man. This is why he's in a Nazi uniform when he shows, but even though it's only described to us and not labeled for us, but he, is show, he shows up in a Nazi SS uniform standing next to the doctor, that this is an image of a Nazi scientist doing experiments on prisoners in the midst of the Holocaust, and that... It's possible, right, that Dr. Black, who is using his medical credentials to get amphetamines, selling them to Jason for a profit, doesn't know that Jason is selling them to the woman he's pursuing romantically. That could very well be. I have a few thoughts about this. So I'm happy to have Dr. Black be potentially a decent human being. This story is absolutely without them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, right. Yes, it would be nice to have to have one. <laughs> um, and so the optimist in me, which is just a kind of a small shred of a of a thing, would like to believe that Doctor Black is what he seems. But Tackman is in a world of absolute chaos, and cannot believe that that's the case. However, you bring up a lot of really good points. One that bothers me with my own reading of this story is that. Jason comes and goes, and it's not clear that there's really a revolving door of men apart from Jason and Dr. Black. 
but that there's a weird in this small community it's weirdly okay that mrs babcock is sleeping with jason is being wooed by dr black they would both probably know about this but you also have a kind of a free love vibe in the story as well, which which to me answers that satisfactorily. The, the like, okay, Dr. Black is like doing what he can to kind of get this woman out of this situation. And he's at the party. His function at the party, why he's dressed as a doctor, is 100% to be a doctor at the party, which is kind of how I read the story. Yeah, I think that's that's... Certainly a plausible reading as well. And I think, of course, I, I love when we have these variant readings of the text here. And I will look to, to listeners, to, to members of the Wolfpack here to drop us a note or jump on the forum and let us know how they read Dr. Black. Yeah, I think both are fair readings. I mean, I thought a lot about the connections between the two characters. But Dr. Death is ultimately the one who Tackman goes to at the end of the story for consolation, comfort and reassurance. So let's put the speculation back into our speculative story here, Brandon. And I'm going to jump back to my my first big category here, fiction and the world. And I want to point out now that, well, at first it seems that Tackman is just imagining the characters in his book coming to life. It seems that other people see them too. The first hint of this is from Aunt May, who seems to have observed Tackman talking to Dr. Death outside the restaurant. The second is the woman having the acid trip who sees Teller and Ransom with Tackman, maybe. And so the question that I have is really a simple one. It's this. Are these characters from the book really crossing into the real world? And if so, how does that affect our reading of the text? In my reading, they are not crossing over into the real world. We have plausible explanations for why other these other characters are commenting about about Tackman's interactions with the characters from the novel. In the first case of Vaunt May, we have a situation where a man has pulled Tackman off the railing. And like any mean adult to a kid who's playing in a place he shouldn't, he probably said something. And then secondly, somebody kind of taps Tackman's shoulder and he pays no notice. And it's entirely possible there that they had words with him that he just ignored or wasn't paying attention to and then dr death appears so wolf immediately kind of undermines this reading that this is these characters are escaping the novel in some way in the second case of the girl on the acid trip it's not clear to me that she sees teller and ransom she sees a boy at a party and she sees shadowy men in corners and she wants the men to come into the light which Dr. Death advises Tackman to not invite those men to do. So I think the woman is just experiencing an altered state and not sharing the subjective space with Tackman. But Ransom and Teller leave Tackman alone, which gives a weird indication that Tackman is at ease with her in some way until Dr. Death appears when she threatens to put the light on. Yeah, so I, I agree with you here, Brandon. My reading of the story also is that this, that the characters coming into the real world is something that is happening in Tackman's head. But some Wolf scholars have made some some compelling arguments otherwise. And so I want to I present a couple of those to you and get I'd your love, I didn't get a chance to really read up on any of these. And so I'm really excited to hear some of these alternate arguments. Yeah, so this is going to lead into my, my third big category here, which I'm labeling Tackman stories and reality. And so I want, I want to pick up an issue raised by Mark Aramini and his coverage of this story in Between Light and Shadow where he points to the woman on the acid trip telling Tackman that she's going to pretend that he's real and asks us to imagine that her indication that Tackman is not real is in fact true. And he suggests that Tackman then, in this reading, might be some kind of entertainment device. I'm not quite certain what he envisions here, and I should say that that Aramini himself dismisses this notion almost as soon as he points it out, but I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting suggestion. I want to discuss it with you, Brandon. So the, the question really just I have to ask is, is what do you make of this idea? Is it possible that Tackman isn't real? That the, the subjective perspective that through which we are getting this story is actually the perspective, not of a person, but of some kind of computer game or virtual reality type of thing? So I wouldn't have really read it in that way. Initially, when you were setting up the question, my answer is, of course, he's not real. It's a story. And that's Wolf is setting up 
setting us up for the end of the story for kind of his final line. Right. When, when we will, we'll get to that here, but um, I think what, I think what Aramini is, is getting at here or suggesting is that there's a perspective from which we could view this story, which is to say this woman having the acid trip is a real human being, but uh, Tackman is not. And there are a couple of things that Tackman might be that, that Aramini brings up here. And one is, one is something virtual that this is like a, a virtual experience that this woman who's having the acid trip uh, is having. It's not, uh, is not a hallucination of her trip, but that the speculative element, the, the, the sci-fi element of this story is some kind of virtual simulation that she's participating in. The other, Another possibility is that Tackman is actually, um, in fact, some kind of robot who other people who are having a virtual, engaging in a virtual simulation of some sort can inhabit. So he, here's the two things that could support that in this story. And they are that Settlers Island is not a real place, and that the House of 31 February is an impossible place. So those are the two things that are like, okay, what's going on here? Um, we're inhabiting this impossible space. But apart from the television and the coffee maker and the cars, no technology is discussed in this story. And that that's what leads me to have a difficult time with that interpretation. The only virtual reality device we're really given in this story is the novel of the island of dr death yeah my reading of the story does not fall in line with that either and neither does aramini's for that matter but i thought it was it's something that other scholars have it's really interesting and for people who are really a fan of the puzzles that wolf leaves his writers that is something to absolutely consider and i'd love to hear any compelling argument for tackman being um something other than he is so I want to finish, Brandon, by uh, addressing the theme here of of permanence versus ephemeralness. And and we see this in the opening passage in which Tackman's writing in the sand is destroyed. And we get it again in the final passage in which Dr. Death tells Tackman that he and his fellow characters will all be resurrected as soon as Tackman begins the book again. But the final line of this passage begs for a deeper discussion of this. And so um, I want to reread the passage. You read it brilliantly for us, Brandon, but I want to just make sure listeners have it like fully in their mind before we get into this discussion. Dr. Death smiles, but if you start the book again, we'll all be back, even Golo and the Bullman. It's the same with you, Tacky. You're too young to realize it yet, but it's the same with you. And so, Brandon, I just want to get your thoughts here on, on what Wolf is pointing to. Now, it's possible that there is something speculative at work here. This is actually even one of the lines that some of these other scholars have pointed to to read Tackman as an entertainment computer program, but doesn't realize it. But I suspect that as a fan of Proust, you're going to have a reading here that has more to do with memory. Yeah, so I have two potential readings. I'll address a discussion about Proust second. The first one is the crucial word, you, that the story ends on. I, I know that Dr. Death addresses Tackman directly in this final series of lines of the story. But the fact that the story ends on you is a clever trick to address really the reader of the story. So what Wolf is doing here is something like, I've written a really good story, and you can experience it again by opening the first page of it. And he's absolutely right. I mean, you and I both mentioned we've read this story a bunch of times. We were both moved by this story. This is a story that is not only more enjoyable upon multiple rereadings, but never seems to age with multiple rereadings. And so uh, that that's kind of the first sense of this final line that I want to address. Is yeah, that Wolf, I, Wolf is really just saying, you, the reader, can do this. Yeah, I have this the same reading here of this passage. And in fact, that's why I, I tried sneakily to begin our episode tonight with a, a brief history of my own experience with this story. And I'm ending with this very question, because my experience this week has been one of me rereading a story I read 16 years ago and coming at it very differently because I myself now subjectively am a different person. Right. And I mean, this is what Wolf really excels at as a writer, and as all great writers do. The human experience is so wide and varied and large that at any given time, revisiting a great work of art is going to be an experience for a different phase in your life than the first phase that you experienced it in. And that goes to identity, which is kind of this Proustian memory sense of the reading um, that you brought up, is that our identities are always in flux as well, and that our experiences change 
and our understanding of our experiences change based on the time in our lives that we revisit them. And this is something that is um, a big part of In Search of Lost Time is that the narrator, Marcel, tells us a story and then retells it again from a new point of view and then retells it again. And we have this series of events that are constantly under a new light. It's as if like a, a prism is held up to a light and you're always shining a different facet onto the story and you get you get new information that irrevocably changes your first impression of what happened. And here, Dr. Death is somehow relating this to our narrator, who is not only us, but is also Tackman, who doesn't understand it, but he senses deep down that his understanding of what happened that night will be very different upon his revisiting of it as an adult, as a teenager, as he has to move to a boy's home, as perhaps he moves into foster care and whatever comes of his life. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great reading and we can really go back and point again here to even that this is the story of in the novel itself of, of ransom, perhaps uh, ransom's experience with Talar here, you know, pointing to Tackman's own, own coming of age. Yeah, in the most traumatic way possible. Right, right. I mean, truly, there's nothing more traumatizing than being exposed to sex in this way um, without context as a, as a child in your parents' home or your mother's home and then watching your mother overdose and people are doing drugs. There's nothing. It's pure chaos. He is in the pit of chaos and he uses the only coping mechanism he has to survive. And that is how we all use stories. And it's just so good. This story is just so good. Yeah. And I, I think we can, we can imagine here, right, I think very easily, Brandon, that an adult Tackman Babcock is thinking about this moment. And this is the moment his life changed. And he is thinking about this moment all the time. He revisits this moment frequently in his life and reads it differently each time that he does. And so Brandon, there's just one more thing that I want to bring up before we go. And it's not really so much a question as an observation that I want to make sure we are giving this story its absolute due diligence, this masterpiece of a story. And it is this. The title of the story is The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories. But the novel within the story is simply The Island of Dr. Death. It's not a story collection. It's a novel. And so I just want to make sure that we're addressing the other stories here. And of course, the other stories are this frame story. But the other stories are also our stories. That's right. right. As this, we read them. And, and and this is something that I absolutely adore about Gene Wolfe is, is his willing to play an interpretive game with his readers that is as much about them reading the book as is about him writing it. And this is the first Wolfe story where this is explicit. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know of no other writer who thinks so much about readers as Wolf and and values his readers not as consumers but uh, as participants in in this I don't know almost perhaps mystical experience of story and and that that this that this story the island of Dr. Death and other stories is uh, an homage to I agree it's it's beautiful stuff well, on that note, Brandon, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums. Let us know what you thought of this story. Uh, weigh in on some of the issues that Brandon and I have raised here, perhaps especially how you read Dr. Black. You can settle this dispute for us. Next time, we'll be covering the story, The Horrors of War, which you can find in the collection endangered species. Until then, we greet you and we say farewell. <laughs>